All right, why don't we turn in our Bibles to Philippians chapter 2 this morning, Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 18. If you'd like to use one of the church Bibles in front of you, you'll find our reading on page 981. We give ourselves to the scriptures because we do believe, in fact, that God does not change. And it follows that if our God does not change, then his word is fixed in the heavens, it is reliable, it is sure, it cannot be altered, it cannot be watered down, it comes with the full force of God's very breath, his voice, his authority. And so we turn in our Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, and we read together verses 12 to 18. Paul writes, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering Upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. And likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is God's word. Let's bow and pray together. Father, we thank you that as we come before you, your word before us, that you have not left us to ourselves to figure out what following Jesus looks like, that you have not only revealed your Son as the Savior of all who believe, but also as the Lord of all of his people. Father, we desire this morning for your Holy Spirit to come to illumine the words of Holy Scripture, to penetrate our hearts, to make us more like your Son. Father, we need your help for this. As we sung together, we need you every hour. We need you this very moment for this very task. So please come and help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friend, are you feeling a bit out of shape? Maybe a little tired? Would you say that you could use just some re-energizing? Have you noticed that the people around you don't seem to be noticing you? like they once did? Do you sense that the 
energy and vigor that you had in your early days has been sucked dry? Well, that's you. I've got good news for you. I have just the workout program for you. Here's the good news. This particular workout program doesn't cost any money to start. It doesn't require a gym membership. You're encouraged, not even encouraged, you're required to do this workout program with others. There'll be accountability. It has been tried by thousands, not even thousands, millions. It has transformed not only cities, but entire cultures. I can assure you that if you get on with this program, oh, people will begin to notice you. So you shine out like lights in the world. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It's going to require a lot of self-sacrifice, an attitude of fear and trembling. But it works. It's the Apostle Paul's wine-free workout. What did you think I was talking about? But in all seriousness, though we think about those issues most often relative to our physical fitness, I think many of us, if we're just being honest, would recognize that these are questions that we could rightly apply to our life and ministry as a church. Many of us feel worn down. We need re-energized. We have this, this sneaking suspicion that the world around us doesn't notice us like they once did. That passion we had for the gospel, the zeal we had for others to come to know Jesus when we first believed, well, that's sort of taken a backseat to other interests. So how do we get back on the right path? That's what Philippians 2, 12 to 18 is about. The Apostle Paul's wine-free workout. Here in this text of scripture, Paul gives us a prescription for how to reclaim our gospel fitness and begin to increase our usefulness in the world around us. He tells us plainly and simply that as believers in Jesus, we are to work out our salvation as God works in us by speaking the gospel rather than complaints. We are to work out our salvation as God works in us by speaking the gospel rather than complaints. Now, of course, we're sort of playing on the two commands that you can see at the beginning of each paragraph of the text in front of you. So that in verse 12, Paul says, work out, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then later in verse 14, he says, do all things, everything, without grumbling or disputing. This is Paul's prescription for us this morning as a church to become more attractive, more useful to the world around us. And what I want to do is I want to look at both paragraphs in turn, and I want to invite you here in verse 12 to notice that Paul tells us to work out because God works in. Work out because God works in. And the very first word that Paul writes here in our passage is therefore. Now last week we talked a little bit about how the Bible is kind of like a line. 
that whenever you read a text of Scripture, you want to stay on the line, not going above it, saying more than it says, below it, saying less than it says. Another principle for you as you read your Bibles well is to give attention to context. And there's a cliche, very simple thing that you can say every time you see the word therefore in the Bible, and it goes like this. Whenever you see a therefore, you ask, what's it there for, right? And so in context here, Paul has been talking all the way back since chapter 1 and verse 27 about this idea of unity in partnership in the gospel. And he's told us that one of the things, probably the main thing that gets in the way of our partnership striving side by side for the faith of the gospel is our holding on to our own self-interests. And here in this text, in context, what Paul is doing is giving us a prescription for letting go of our own pet agendas, our own self-interests, our own selfish ambition, and getting on with unity and partnership in the context of the local church. And so he says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, don't be like the child who only obeys when mom and dad is around, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Friends, almost every word here is worth millions Because the translators here have made a concerted effort not to confuse us. I want you to look down at the passage, actually look down at the passage and notice that Paul does not say work towards your salvation. He does not say work for your salvation. He does not say work at your salvation. He says work out your salvation. And the reason that that is so vital is that you and I understand this instinctively. You may only work out a muscle that you already have. It would be wrong-headed for us to think that somehow or another Paul is prescribing a works-based salvation whereby in order to achieve God's favor, I have to work for it. Friends, if you're not a Christian here this morning, the the one thing we would want you to know more than anything else is that salvation is the gift of God. As a matter of fact, early on in Philippians, in chapter 1, verse 28, Paul refers to the Philippian salvation as being from God. We understand salvation to be reserved for those who understand their inability because of sin to earn God's favor or to please God. And so that God, in the person of his Son, must do everything required by the law in our place, die for our sin, and rise again for us to have any right standing with the Father. So we're not talking about working for, or working at, or working towards. We're talking about working out. There's a balance here that we so desperately need to strike. Because all the while, our salvation is a gift, but the early Christians used to say things like this. This is from Justin Martyr, one of the early church apologists. He said, let it be understood 
that those who are not found living as Christ taught are not Christians. Even though they profess with the lips the teaching of Christ, for not those who make profession, but those who do the works shall be saved. Now what is at work here is this idea that the way that we live necessarily provides evidence of God's prior work of grace in our lives. The only way you or I are able to work anything out regarding our salvation is if God has preceded that by working in us. Do you see what Paul says? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do you know what the problem is with most workout programs? Motivation. So let's assume for the sake of argument that there's a young man, roughly 35 years old, called Pastor Mark, and he decides he really wants to get fit. And so he buys one of those video programs, you know, 60 Days to a Transformed Body and Physical Fitness. He puts in the first DVD. He tries to do the workout, looks at the people on the screen and says, they are way more fit than I will ever be. I can't do most of those moves, or Mark can't do most of those moves. And so <laughs> Mark takes the video out of the DVD player, slips it back in the envelope, and puts it on the shelf, never to be seen again. Do you see what Paul does here? It's brilliant. There is no lack of motivation for you and I working out our salvation together as a church because what goes before us is God's work of grace in our lives. It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Here is our motivation for being more like Jesus. God is fully invested in that task. Brothers and sisters, you cannot get away from what the Bible actually says here. God is at work in you if you are a believer. And he's at work in you, notice, not simply at the level of your desire. He's at work in you if you are a Christian person, not only at the level of your desire, but at the level of your doing. He is at work in you to will, to want to obey, to want the right things, and to do, to work, to actually obey. But this is why we're on about this week after week. My obedience has to, always does, follow on from God's work of grace in my life. Without God will, working in me to will and work for his good pleasure, I'm toast. But if he's at work in me, and you. This kind of motivation is utterly amazing. God is more fully invested at you and I looking like Jesus than we are. He doesn't work out for you, but you can't work out without him. Work out your own salvation, Paul says, with fear and with trembling. We are not playing at being Christian people. This is serious work. But all the while with an eye to the fact that it is God who enables and energizes 
everything I do. And therefore, he gets all the praise. Work out, Paul says, because God works in. You say, what does that look like? That's that's sort of high-level principle stuff, but in the nitty-gritty of life, as we're living out our Christian faith together, what does that actually look like? So turning again to the text, Paul tells us not only to work out because God works in, but he tells us, and I love this, turn down the whining and turn up the gospel. How just earthy is that? Being a Christian touches upon every facet of our lives, our heart attitudes and what comes out of our mouths. Because if you want to know what it looks like to work out while God works in, turn down the whining and turn up the gospel. Look at verse 14. He says, do all things, everything, without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Verse 16, holding fast to the word of life. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, and hold fast to the word of life. Paul wants this little church in Philippi to be so utterly attractive to the world around them that the only way he can describe the difference is that between a floodlight, just the effulgence of brilliance and light against the backdrop of darkness. So friends, again, if we want to be attractive... We have to be different. Difference attracts. I can remember when I was uh, at Parkside, and I used to drive through Twinsburg uh, on my way to church in the mornings, and it was always before the sun came up. There was a model home on the top of this hill, and it was beautiful because you'd come around this curve, and the house was on top of the hill, and it was a model home, and they always had every light in the house on. And so up against the backdrop of the darkness of the early morning sky sat this brilliant, illuminated house on the top of a hill. And Paul is saying, I want you to be like a a house on the top of a hill illuminated against the darkness of the world around you. I want you to shine. How do I do that? Real practical. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Stop the whining. How relevant and how practical is that? He says, do all things without grumbling or complaining so that you may be blameless, that is, externally no one will be able to charge you with wrong." And innocent, that is, in the heart, my heart of hearts, I will be pure before the Lord. Shining out as you really are, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. You do that by stopping grumbling and disputing. The word for grumbling here, it, it sounds just like what it is. Grumble, 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 grumble. This is not saying that we don't confront sin or injustice. But what Paul is saying is, friends, we're all going to have to get over ourselves. 
Because if you think for a moment with me about why you or I complain, we almost exclusively complain. I mean, you can test this out for yourself. I'm sure there are some exceptions. We almost exclusively complain when our own little pet agendas are threatened, when our self-interests are attacked, when our preferences aren't shared, when it's all about us. So Paul says, stop it. Stop the grumbling and complaining. If you do that, you will shine as lights in the world. Now, every one of us here, at one point or another, has come across a testimony of, you know, a dear old lady, call her Mildred, because why not? Mildred, you know, she's ill, she's in hospital, she's failing, and the people around her are blown away because they say, you know what? You know what's true of Millie? Even though she was suffering, she never complained even once. People go, whoa, how'd that happen? If we want to be attractive, imagine it for a moment that we would become a place where your friends and neighbors would come and talk to a, a, a sample of our membership and say, you know what, those people are downright weird. I talked to them for 30 minutes, I didn't hear one complaint. There was no grumbling. There was no disputing. I think they love each other. How in the world did that happen? And you come along and you say, well, I think we're working on our salvation with fear and trembling as God works in us to will and work for his good pleasure. I'd like to talk to you about that. Not only do we turn down the grumbling, but on the flip side, Paul says, you will shine as lights of the world, holding fast, this is the way that we shine, holding fast to the word of life. That's the gospel. Not only applying it to our inner life together, but holding it, as it were, a floodlight on the world around us. Not speaking complaints, but speaking Christ and him crucified. Which is what I'm on about when I say the main things are the plain things. Talk about Jesus and him crucified. The necessity of faith in him to be saved. The urgency of the gospel task for each and every one of us. There's a world that's lost and dying. It's crooked and twisted. And we have the remedy. Turning down the complaints and the infighting and turning up the gospel that unifies and saves and converts and transforms. As Paul thinks of all of this, he says, listen, verse 17, 16 and 17, I want you to do this because I'm looking forward to that day when you appear before God the Father. I want to be sure that I don't stand there next to you and look at a bunch of grumbling complainers and go, goodness, Lord, I wasted my time. Isn't that what he says? I want to know that I did not run in vain. That's an athletic imagery. I want to know that all my marathon training wasn't for nothing. I want to know that I didn't labor in vain. 
that I wasn't clocking in and clocking out and sweating and bleeding and working on your behalf for nothing so that you could be at each other's throats. But Paul, understanding God's work in the lives of the Philippians, doesn't think that's the case at all. Because he says, verse 17, look, I don't want to run in vain, I don't want to labor in vain, but even if I'm poured out as a drink offering, even if my life is laid down, as long as you're faithful, man, I'm good. That's gospel ministry. He says, even if I'm poured out, the, the, the imagery there is of a, a drink offering being poured out on an animal sacrifice. Even if I'm poured out, even when I completely spend myself till I have nothing left, if I know that on that day you're going to appear before your Lord blameless, I've got no greater joy. One of my favorite things to do as a pastor, I love to preach I love to be with people. One of my favorite things to do is, is weddings. And I'll tell you why. Because I'm weird. <laughs> and what I do at weddings is, you know there's that moment where the, the doors in the back of the, the auditorium open and everyone turns around and looks at the bride. Now brides are nice. But I like to look at my man next to me. Because there's nothing better. Nothing than looking at a man's face when he sees his girl walk down the aisle for the first time. Stunning. Sometimes I gotta, you know, kind of jab him so he'll pick his mouth up before he has to do the I do's. Sometimes before the doors even open, I look at him and go, hey man, here it comes. This only happens once, ideally. And um, <laughs> remember it, I'm glad to stand. But man, the look on his face. And Paul's going, I can't wait for that day when the doors open. I'm standing by the Lord of the universe. And here comes the bride, decked out in white. No grumbling, no complaining. Shining like a bright light. And I get to say, Lord, you use me for that. That makes me full of joy. Because my life is bound up in your good for that day. Yale University just started offering a class, Psychology and the Good Life. It's a class on happiness. This is the first year they've offered it. 25% of the undergraduates at Yale University have enrolled for this class. It's the largest class in the history of the school. There are 1,182 students in this course. The professor who is offering the class is uh, sort of theorizing that the reason that so many of the students are taking this class on happiness is that they're Ivy League students. They've been working their tails off academically in terms of extracurriculars, athletics, and they've got virtually nothing left for others. Their lives have totally been consumed with earning and achieving. And so what the professor has said is that the goal of the course is to literally transform the culture of the university away from an attitude of self-interest and towards an attitude of others' focus. The course, in her own description, 
is meant to teach that a high grade, a prestigious internship, a good paying job, none of those things increase happiness at all. So what will increase your joy? Gospel partnership. Spending and being spent with the brothers and sisters that God has placed around us to see Jesus glorified, to see him given the victory, the the prize for which he died, putting aside our own pet agendas and self-interests for the exaltation of Jesus. That's guaranteed to work. It's God's word. question is, brother and sister, are we willing to work out what God works in, and are we willing to start in the nitty-gritty of repenting, me first, of a negative spirit and a grumbling attitude, holding on to the main thing as the plain thing, so that we would shine out like lights, radiant, attractive, different to the glory of our God and Savior. That's what it's about. Life together. Do all things without grumbling or disputing for God's glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word hits so deep inside each of our hearts. Who among us would pretend that we're exempt from grumbling and disputing? But we thank you so much that you have committed yourself to us in Christ and by the Holy Spirit to work in us that which is pleasing to you. You call us then to work that out in practice. And so it's our sincere and humble prayer that you would so work in our hearts, each and every one of us, to remove any trace of complaining or whining or grumbling so that we might get on the business of connecting people to Jesus, being seen as lights in the world, a group of really strange people saved by grace who just simply won't whine. Lord, help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together for our closing doxology. Again, I'm challenged by the word of God and need the help of the Lord, so we hear now from Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen. Go in his grace.